Tonight, as we continue our study of knowing God, we're looking at chapter number 11, which is on the truthfulness of God and by extension, then the truthfulness of his word. Thy word is truth. One of the things he mentions toward the beginning of the chapter is that the whole Bible has uh, in it certain assumptions about God. He says literally every verse behind it has these assumptions. Uh, One of them is God is king. That is that God is the sovereign over all the universe and he has everything within his purview, within his notice, as well as within his control. He is the sovereign king over the universe. And the other assumption is that God speaks. And we don't often think about the graciousness that this is. That God would communicate, especially his word, his will to us as his creatures. God could have remained silent. God could have given us just the witness of creation itself and being able to see just the the minimum of God's existence and, and some of his attributes in creation. But he has given us, so he's lavished on us so much more than that in giving us his, his word. It's a treasure house of truth. And so that we might relate to him, that he would be our creator and that we would relate to him in a loving way as his creatures. So the, the Bible assumes that God is king and that he speaks to us. And he says these two ideas, the sovereignty of God and the word of God relate to one another. In fact, the word of God is really an extension of his rule, his, his sovereignty. He makes this quote toward the beginning of the chapter. He says, just as God's relations with his world have to be understood in terms of his sovereignty. So his sovereignty is to be understood in terms of what the Bible tells us about his word. So they're related to one another and they're one is an extension of the other. And he talks about how God in many respects is like a king. And he compares them to some of the kings in the ancient world where a king would have two kinds of speech. A king would have a, a kind of speech of command, of giving orders, laws, but then the king would also have what you might call royal speeches in which he would seek to build a rapport with his people and in a sense to develop a relationship with them. And he says God in, in that respect is like a king because God's word takes on these two forms as well. God can speak by divine fiat, meaning he speaks and it is. He gives the command and it comes to be. But God also speaks more personally through what he calls Torah, instruction, law, promise, testimony. And so God speaks in these two ways. Uh, uh, An example of divine fiat would be Genesis 1. Let there be light. And there was light. God just said it and it happened. He commanded it and it came to pass. But uh, Torah or instruction would be when God comes to Adam and Eve personally and speaks to them and gives them his word. And he says Torah also has a threefold character. And one of those is law. 
And law is just the sense of commands, prohibitions, uh, and what they are to do or not do. And along with those commands, uh, various punishments. Punishments if they disobey, but blessings if they obey. So law and also promise. Uh, Promise is when God says he will do something or this is what will happen. And he says those promises can be either favorable or unfavorable. God can give a favorable promise of blessing, but he can also say, because you've disobeyed, this is what's going to happen and give an unfavorable word that will happen, that will come to pass. And then testimony. And testimony is what we might say information about God, uh, things that God reveals to us about himself, about his ways in the world, the way that he relates to us as his people. He says, uh, the word which God addresses directly to us is an instrument not only of government, but also of fellowship. In other words, God gives Torah, he gives law, he gives promises, testimony, not just to remind us that he is in charge and we are under him. That is true. He is sovereign. He is God. He is Lord. We are under his authority as his creatures. But in God giving us his word, he does it for more than that. To establish relationship and fellowship with us. And so God speaks to us, not only to move us to do what he wants, but to enable us to know him so that we may love him. And that's really what we've been trying to uh, emphasize. And I've tried to remind us of as we've gone through this whole study is that as we learn about God and we learn more of his character and his actions in the world, that we want to know about God, not just to know, not just to have facts, not just to have like a, a theological mind, but that it would also engage our hearts and that we would come to love God and in fellowship with him, draw closer to him. And so God speaks not just for us to obey him, but so that we might love him and draw close to him in fellowship. And then there's a the section that he begins the chapter with. The first main section is the God who speaks. And he, he brings us to Genesis 1, where in Genesis 1, really, in, in the first few chapters of Genesis, we see uh, God, uh, really all of the aspects of his word on display. In Genesis 1, we see uh, the divine fiat aspect of God's word on display. Let there be, and there is. But we also see the more personal, relational aspects of God's word on display too. When God specifically comes to Adam and Eve and says, I bless you. Says he blessed them and then he gave them the instruction, now go and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God comes to them and speaks to them person to person in a relational way. And he says, when God does come to Adam and Eve, we see uh, some of the different elements of God's Torah, if you will, uh, on display. And so we see command in Genesis 1.28. Go, fill the earth, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over all the, the creatures that I've made. And so it's, it's command. This is what God wants them to do. But also we see testimony. Uh, 
uh, in the sense where God uh, explains things to them. God explains, this is what I've made and I've made it for you. I've made all these trees and all the fruit and all of these for you, for to eat. And so God gives them instruction, testimony about him and, and what he's done for them. We also see in chapter two, a prohibition where God says, I've given you all this for food, fruit of the trees in the garden. But this one, this tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat of it because if you do, you will die. So that's a prohibition and along with it, a repercussion, a consequence if they disobeyed. And then we also see promise in Genesis 3, 15 to 19, both favorable and unfavorable. Favorable in the sense that in Genesis 3, 15, God says, I'm going to bring a deliverer into the world who's going to ultimately crush and defeat uh, Satan, the serpent, but also unfavorable that this is now what's going to happen because of your disobedience. You're going to have pain. You're going to have frustration, turmoil, thorns and thistles. And so, and then he says, really within these opening chapters of Genesis, it's kind of a, a little uh, example or microcosm, if you will, of the kinds of speech that we see through the whole rest of the Bible. Here within the compass of these three short chapters of Genesis, we see the word of God in all the relations in which it stands to the world and to man within it. Command or instruction or promise, testimony, He says the whole Bible insists that all circumstances and events in the world are determined by the word of God, the creator's omnipotent, let there be. God says it, it comes to pass. He gives the example of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter one, when God calls the prophet Jeremiah and he says, I am sending you, I'm appointing you over the nations and kingdoms to uproot, to tear down, to destroy to overthrow, to build, and to plant. And he says, how can this be of Jeremiah? He's just a prophet. He's not a king. How can he have this much influence to set up kingdoms or to take down kingdoms? And he says, the reason is because Jeremiah is God's mouthpiece. So by extension, Jeremiah is carrying forth the word of the Lord. And it's the word of the Lord that has the power to take down kingdoms or set up kingdoms. And so God's word accomplishes what he sets it out to do. And we read that in Isaiah 55, verse 10, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So when God gives word, a sovereign word, it will come to pass. It will happen. It will not return void. It will be accomplished. And so God's word accomplishes what it sets out to do. The whole Bible maintains this insistence that God's word is his executive instrument in all human affairs. Of him, as of no one else, it is true that what he says goes. You've heard that statement, right? 
what this person says, that's how it goes. Well, that might be true in a very limited sense, but it's never true ultimately, except for God. Because what God says goes. And so that's him and his relationship to the whole world, his sovereignty. In relationship to us, the word of the Lord comes as law or promise or testimony. Uh, We see an example of law at Mount Sinai when God gives the Ten Commandments. This is how you're to worship me. No other gods before me, no graven images. Don't take my name in vain. Honor, remember the Sabbath day. Obey your parents. Um, Don't kill, don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness, don't steal, don't covet. And so we, we see God's law on display, but not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament too. Christ gives commands to his followers. He gives commands to us for us to obey. So God's word comes to us as law. It also comes to us as promise. God says, this is what I'm going to do. And it is a word that will be fulfilled because God's promises are faithful and true. It may also come to us as testimony through instruction, through God revealing to us who he is in his character, the way that he relates to the world. But this is how the word of the Lord comes to us. The claim of the word of God upon us is absolute. The word is to be received, trusted, and obeyed because it is the word of God, the king. So when we receive command, we should receive that, trust it, and obey it because God is king. When we receive promise, we should believe it and live our lives on the basis of it because God is king. When he gives us testimony, we should receive that as perfect divine instruction for how to see the world because it comes from God. And then he talks about absolute truth. He says, we are to believe and obey God's word, not only because he tells us to, but also and primarily because it is a true word. Its author is the God of truth. So God has authority, right? So we should obey it. One reason, because God has authority. He's the Lord. But also we should obey it because it's right. It's true. It's the best possible way of seeing things because God is the God of truth. He says, God's commands are true. He says for two reasons. One, because they have stability and permanence as setting forth what God wants to see in human lives in every age. And also because they tell us the unchanging truth about our own nature. When God gives us commands, What he's saying here in this section of the chapter is when God gives us commands, those commands harmonize with the way that God has made the world. Those commands harmonize with the way that God has made us. So that when we obey God's commands, we're living in harmony with our nature as originally designed by God. We're living in harmony with how God 
made the world and his laws and his ways of operating. His commands are right. They are true. He gives an example in um, the chapter of uh, the, just physically. We know that our bodies work a certain way. And if we put certain things into our body, then our body will flourish. It will, it will be healthy. It will be stronger. But if we put unhealthy things into our body, it will break us down. It will make us unhealthy, sickly. So he says our soul can be understood like that too. That if we put healthy things into our soul or do healthy things, then our soul will become healthy. If we do unhealthy things, then our soul will become unhealthy. And so he says this, as rational persons, we were made to bear God's moral image. That is, our souls were made to run on the practice of worship, law-keeping, truthfulness, honesty, discipline, self-control, and service to God and our fellows. That's how God made us. And he says, if we abandon these practices, not only do we incur guilt before God, we also progressively destroy our own souls. One not only becomes desperately miserable, one is steadily being dehumanized. I thought that was an incredibly profound statement that when we disobey God and we live our lives contrary to the principles of God's word and contrary to his commands, not only are we sinning and incurring God's wrath on us, but we're also breaking ourselves down. We're, we're treating ourselves unhealthily and we are destroying ourselves because we're not working in harmony with the way that God made us to be. He made us to worship him. So when we worship something else, it's disharmonizing. God made us to, to love him and to obey his word. When we live our lives for ourselves, we, we find no joy, ultimately, no satisfaction in that. And it begins to wear, wear us down. And we become less and less human when we live outside of God's parameters. And he even uses this as an example. And I think it's amazing that this issue has been going on for so long. He originally wrote Knowing God 40 years ago in the 70s. And the illustration he gave in the 70s was um, the the world's secular morality on sexual ethics. And the world says, oh, your, your biblical view, your Christian view of sexual ethics, that's so outmoded, that's so outdated. We're, we're now in modern times. But when we don't live our lives the way that God made us to be, it creates havoc in our lives personally. It creates havoc in societies. It, it, it ruins everything. God made us as sexual beings, but within a, a certain um, way of living that out, and that's within marriage. So God designed marriage. He designed a man and a wife to be together and to build a home and a family together and to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
And, but when that pattern is broken through uh, unmarital sex, through homosexuality, through whatever, any kind of perversion of it that is out there in the world, it is dehumanizing. Instead of being human, we turn into brutes. And that's exactly what the way Paul describes it in Romans 1. We become unrational, unthinking people doing things contrary to nature. So when we abandon the principles for which God made us, we wreak havoc on our own souls and even on our own bodies and destroy ourselves. He says, we are only living truly human lives just so far as we are laboring to keep God's commandments. No further. And I've used this illustration before too, probably just a week or two ago, but you can pound in a nail with a screwdriver, but that's not how it works. That's not what it was made for. And when you use something for the way it's not made for, then it creates all sorts of problems. Things break and things don't work the way that they should. We were made to love God and obey his word. And when we don't live in that way, it not only uh, angers God and his holiness, but it makes us worse too. It breaks us down. So God's commands are true. They're right. God's commands are the best possible way to live a human life. God's promises are true because God keeps them. God is faithful. He will not let his promises go unfulfilled. How does God's faithfulness show itself? By his unfailing fulfillment of his promises. He is a covenant keeping God. He never fails those who trust his word. And there are examples of this truth all the way across the Bible. All the way across the Bible. We could start in Genesis and we could see the promises of God. God promises Noah, I'm going to save you. I'm going to rescue you. And he does. He promises Abraham, I'm going to give you a son and I'm going to turn you into a great nation. Took him 25 years or so and a lot of ups and downs in Abraham's life, but he was teaching him all along the way and God fulfilled that word. And he blessed Abraham and Sarah with Isaac in their old age. God keeps his promises. A fixed, constant attention to the promises and a firm belief of them would prevent solicitude and anxiety about the concerns of this life. Christians deprive themselves of their most solid comforts by their unbelief and forgetfulness of God's promises. That comes from the Puritan Samuel Clark. He says one of the things that we can do that will bring us more encouragement and, and hope is to focus our attention on the promises of God. Remind us what God has said and, and believe and trust those promises. And that's how he finishes the chapter is our response to the word of God is simply to believe it and to obey it. It's just like that, that simple hymn that we sing sometimes, trust and obey. That is the only way. Trust and obey. He says, what is a Christian? A true Christian is someone who acknowledges and lives under the word of God. Their eyes are upon the God of the Bible as their father and the Christ of the Bible as their savior. Someone who believes, who trusts God's word and lives their lives according to it.
God is a God who can be trusted. Therefore, his word can be trusted. Not only to, uh, to give us encouragement and hope through promises, but also to give us the most fulfilling and flourishing life by obeying God's commands. It is to be trusted. And in essence, when we don't live our lives according to God's commands, we're saying, God, I don't trust you that this is the best way to live life. That's in essence what Adam and Eve did, isn't it? When they took the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they were basically saying, God, I don't trust you that the best way to live life is to obey your commands. We think there's something more. We think there's something better out there. And so we want to do our own thing. But it is fundamentally not trusting that God has our best interests at heart. And that when we obey his word, that is the best life, the best way of living a human life. 